Welcome to the Net Positive Podcast, a series of podcasts on clean energy and the environment. The Net Positive is about crafting healthy communities and a sustainable world. These explorations are designed to educate and inspire. That's when we get action. This episode features a conversation with Kirk Stokes. He's the Vice President for Business Development for Smart Storage at MBL Energy. We're happy to have him on the show this afternoon. Well, Kirk, welcome to the show. I'm glad to have you here with me. Thank you. I totally appreciate the invite and um, welcome the opportunity to chat with you as well. Yeah, we're gonna. I really, we're really looking forward to digging in uh, into microgrids and storage solutions. But, but before we do that, I've already framed up uh, your credentials. Um, let's go all the way back to your youth. <laughs> I think, having looked at your resume, that you were born and raised in Los Alamos, New Mexico. Is that correct? I'm. I'm not surprised you got that impression because we lived in Los Alamos a lot. Uh, but I was actually born in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, my dad went to CU. He's an engineer from University of Colorado. You've heard the phrase uh, military brats. Um, my siblings and I, I'm the oldest, were uh, national lab brats. <laughs> my dad moved around a fair amount, Livermore, Nevada test site, Los Alamos, Sandia. Um, when we were growing up, he ended up spending the most time. And in effect, I graduated from Los Alamos High School a long time ago. Right. And then and then you flowed right into New Mexico, New Mexico State University for your undergraduate degree? I it was a long and winding road even through my undergrad. <laughs> really trying to figure out I could always do the math. I was always good at problem solving and I was good at math. And my dad was an engineer and and he kind of encouraged the engineering path. But because the way I was raised, we spent a lot of time outdoors. We were outdoor enthusiasts. I don't think my dad would have described himself as an environmentalist at the time, back in that day. But that's what he raised. <laughs> he raised an engineer, an engineering brain with an environmentalist heart. You know, so I, I was looking for uh, a path to use my engineering early on. Um, and it led me to, eventually it led me to New Mexico State. I did the first couple of years of college elsewhere. So you were, you were looking for a way of applying that engineering. What, what did you, like when you were a kid, what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? <laughs> uh, you know, we were mostly, the career was not really so much a focus when I was growing up as we had a lot of fun. We were moving, we were out, we were spending a lot of time outdoors. We were athletic. We liked team sports. We liked individual sports. There was a lot of activities in our life as, as our family moved around. We were very, very close and remain a very close family. Um, and, and really I, the turning point for me, I, you know, I just didn't think about it much. My dad encouraged me to go to engineering school. And really there were a couple moments in that early phase of engineering where I kind of decided that clean energy was the path I wanted to get on. And that was about what year would you say? 1970? 78, 78, 79. There were two, two, my sophomore year of college before I took a year and a half off 
in longer story there, but um, there were two things that happened in my sophomore year. Um, one was I had a thermodynamics professor who was building a passive solar home and he kept using examples of thermal, you know, thermodynamics and heat transfer in the context of his, of his solar home design. So I was like, okay, here's a way to apply this engineering background to thermo. And another, another thing that happened, you have, you know, the, the RMI in your background, Rocky Mountain Institute in your background, a, a good friend that wasn't an engineer, but was an environmentalist, you know, we had a connection that way, gave me a soft path, soft energy path, that book in my sophomore year of college. And so that was 78. And that was, you know, those two kind of factors is what I think of when I think back to kind of like trying to figure out how to apply what my brain could do in a way that I, I had a passion about. Yeah. I love the fact that you brought that up, Kirk. I just had dinner with Amory a couple of weeks ago in Colorado. We actually had a couple of evenings with him, but at dinner, um, I was getting a little mushy and I was talking about soft energy paths. <laughs> I was talking about how he had really influenced a, a generation of us. Uh, we, 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 were, we were motivated by this guy that saw, that said, I was in the anti-nuclear movement and uh, here was this guy talking about these terrific solutions that were distributed and clean and uh, could really bring, bring us great benefits as a society. Totally. And my uh, another little anecdote for me is, my dad, who is a huge influence on my life in all, all sorts of ways, um, he was at Los Alamos. This is where he ended up retiring at Los Alamos Labs. I graduated from there. He was still living there for the next 20 years, he did. Los Alamos had this reputation, still does. It's a nuclear weapons lab. You know, they focus on, on nuclear energy, nuclear weapons. But there was a lot of innovative solar energy thinking. A fellow named Doug Palcom, who you probably know. Um, was a Los Alamos lab. He ran a division at Los Alamos lab that was doing a lot of passive solar work and kind of thinking about building, building design, building energy systems. And my dad was a total geek about that stuff. And he designed his own passive solar home modeled after Doug Balcom's home um, that I took off my soft, after my sophomore year, my brother and I took a year and a half off and helped my dad build his house. So he, we built a, he designed we did owner builder kind of a passive solar home in Los Alamos. And that was another moment that's like, I was sure that when I was done and ready to go back to school, that um, clean energy and that soft energy path, whatever form it took was the path I wanted to be on. And then, and then you formed, is it Altair Energy? Was that your first solar company? It was, that was, so I, my first solar job was working as a contractor. This was out of the Colorado State University Solar Mechanical Engineering Department in the late 80s, had a solar energy division, solar energy lab that the ME department ran, got my master's there. And I went to Las Cruces, to back to New Mexico State. And they, had, they were a contractor to Sandia Labs at the time. Sandia was developing the first solar PV production models PV form, it was called back in the day, that became the basis for a lot of the solar production modeling that occurs even today. And they needed data. They needed performance modeling data. So I went and worked for New Mexico State. They were one of three research stations nationally. One was at MIT Lincoln Lab, one was in Central Florida, and one was at New Mexico State. And that was my first solar job. I spent five years there before then moving to Colorado and then fast forwarding a few years, starting Altair Energy as a 
design build, I was sure I wanted to apply what I learned, not research it. <laughs> so that that was the genesis of Altair Energy in the late late nineties. And so those you were putting in some early some of the early solar systems for largely residential at the time. Right. We we had a contract. What what launched? We got an angel investor, and what launched Altair Energy was one. This angel investor was the owner and founder of, of Advanced Energy up in Fort Collins, Doug Schatz, who happened to be interested in power conditioning for solar systems. And he wanted to you know, be involved with a bunch of young engineering oriented guys. So we had, he was our angel investor and we had a contract with Excel Energy. The consulting work I'd done prior to Altair was largely consulting to utilities, kind of educating about clean energy, about solar. And we, we did the first net, we ran uh, Excel's net metering program in the late 90s. And we did probably the first 100 grid tied systems in Colorado. We also ran Excel Energy Solar for School program then. We did 30, 30 solar for school projects, including Carbondale um, back in the day. So that was, that, that's what paid the bills. We had a contract with Excel at the time that was early stage pilot net metering program, really that was kind of in the same at the time about the same kind of genre as some of the innovative stuff that was going on in California too. And, and so you were, you were definitely on rooftop. You were in, you were, you were installing at the time. We were, we were installing and we installed, like I said, 75 ish. Some of the first net metered grid interactive grid connected solar systems, all homes or these really small systems as pilots on schools but we were our our we had a we were an EPC. We were one of the first solar EPCs, probably nationally. There weren't there weren't many of us around at the time that were actually designing, building, and in, installing, selling solar systems for homes. So. And then we won't go through all the steps, but Altair, and then SunTest <laughs> Power System, then Solar Power, and then Golden Power. You had all these different uh, jobs just building your resume of installations and projects. The solar coaster. I didn't coin the phrase, but it's so true. You know, through lots of merger, acquisition, new business startup, you know, it's really been a 20, 20 years of, of new business and new product development work that I, I think I must like it. I like solving problems. I, I like solving puzzles. I like doing things new. Um, and so I've kind of been on that leading edge of trying to introduce these new systems and new businesses into, uh, into the space. So. so it's got to be pretty rewarding when you, when you look back on your history here, your, your career, and you see that solar has just gone from this very nascent position. I remember Don Osborne at SMUD, you know, if we could only be producing 60 megawatts a year globally, that would be the, <laughs> wouldn't that be great? And now, of course, you know, yeah. it's just off the charts and some of the cheapest power on the right. market. So. Oh, totally true. And it's, it's totally rewarding, totally satisfying. I joke with my wife that, that there's a real industry out there. There's a reason that I'm working with a bunch of, you know, 30-somethings. <laughs> Maybe the old, you know, some of the older ones might be 40. But there's a real industry out there that's drawing now you know, expertise in the next generation of, of minds into this industry. And that's, that's, you know, to have played a small part in that, it, it, it is satisfying for sure. Yeah, it's really great. I just did an interview with Dennis Hayes, um, largely considered the founder of Earth Day and talked about the whole environmental movement and 
what Gal what sort of came together in 1972 and how how important that has been for for all of the clean technologies and, and the and the reforms that have been going on. But you mentioned problem solving, and that's clearly why you went towards storage. I always think of energy storage as being sort of the next quantum leap or the next step in complexity from from solar alone. Um, but did, did you go directly to to was it um, was it Sharp's Smart Energy or Smart Storage? Was it, was that your first sort of real focus on storage and microgrids? Yeah, you know the quick anecdote is those projects I mentioned for Excel Energy back in the early days, they had batteries in them also, and they were actually resilient systems. They had trace inverters. They didn't have sophisticated software. They had a manual transfer switch, but we would always create a critical load subpanel. These were Foothills communities, Evergreen, you know, the front range area, uh, communities that had occasional outages and they wanted solar. So fast forward, you know, really to 2012, I joined, I left my, the solar only world that I was in and joined Sharp Labs of America because they were, they needed a solar guy on their team. They were a bunch of um, analytical software development guys that were focused on, they had this, because Sharp had a solar division, they certainly understand the value of adding storage to solar systems, dispatchable solar, in effect. You know, that's what so, that's what storage does for a solar system. It, it gives you the ability to automate and control the ebb and flow of, of a resource that typically is only controlled by the sun. But so I joined Sharp in 2012 and, We've really started and founded that product, the smart storage product in in subsequent years that you know now has been rolling out and adding new features, adding new ways to add to deliver economic benefits, as you know. And now we're stacking, we're getting to the point to segue into the microgrid world of in addition to normal grid tied operation to divide to develop to um, present and and deliver bill savings to customers. We're now able to stack and operate the system during an outage for that resiliency benefit as well. Pretty great. Let, let's before we I want to really dig into sort of interconnection issues, but um, uh, and how utilities are responding to this. But you and I really we'd met, but we really got to know each other because of the Santa Rita Union School District story or that project, which right. the motion that developed uh, with the school for the school district, and we created six microgrids there. Um, and it seemed like uh, everything that could go wrong, maybe not, maybe that's an <laughs> overstatement. It was just, uh, you, you ended up taking the project. The concept was beautiful. The, the financing was wonderful. Uh, the, the construction was, was fantastic. But it, you ended up taking the project and, and getting it from uh, a bunch of equipment on the site to getting it fully interconnected with the grid. And what, what, was, what were the key issues that, that made that so lengthy that process you know and it's always 2020 hindsight <laughs> but i put santa rita and we're we're santa rita is is now operating it, it's in the mode right now fast forward a few years we are uh, operating it as of today we're op operating the microgrids with kind of a new software platform but aside from that what what we learned in hindsight was it, not everything went wrong, but we learned a lot of lessons that we would that we will try not to repeat, <laughs> doing it the same way in the future. And a, a simple way of describing it is 
the solar industry spent 10 years getting utilities, collaborative at some level, but getting utilities comfortable that when an outage occurs, these UL-listed solar inverters and then solar plus storage inverters that would deliver grid-tied benefits would turn off immediately when the outage occurs so that no, there's no risk to utility linemen repairing the outage that they would uh, incur a shock. So the utilities, rightfully so, are really concerned about backfeed. When they think their system's down and they're trying to repair it, they do not want these distributed resources to be backfeeding. So we spent a lot of years in the industry in the, with these uh, grid interactive inverters and getting utilities comfortable that they will turn off the way they supposed, they're supposed to turn off. Now you enter the picture where we're introducing a new generator. That's really what we're doing. The genset, the engine generator world has been around forever. And it and utilities are comfortable with that operation too, that when the auto transfer switch in a genset system, the grid goes out, the ATS starts the generator, utilities are comfortable that that ATS is not gonna allow backfeeding to the grid. Our generator is different. The solar plus storage generator, they can operate both grid tied and in outage mode. And now at Santa Rita, we we enter, we opened a Pandora's box with interconnection issues with utility that hasn't been opened very often behind, with behind the meter systems. And what we learned was utilities are still hyper concerned as they should be that this new technology coupled with storage that can operate in an outage and can operate the solar system in an outage. Now they have this concern that a backfeed. And so they sent us through a 12-month ordeal to get our hardware and our software certified, site one site certified, so that to guarantee to them that it wouldn't backfeed when we went into outage mode. Right. That's 12 great. months. That was a minimum. It was a 12 to 15-month process. It was an ordeal. A really good description of an understanding of, of utilities lack of comfort or or just that it takes time to get comfortable with, as you said, they're comfortable with the automatic transfer switches on the gensets. Uh, if you have an automatic transfer switch on a microgrid, then theoretically you're good, right? That's correct. The, the, catch, the, catch, is, the catch is though, we have, a, the, the utilities have specific DG relays and, and third-party consultants to make sure that when you put a microgrid in place, that you're putting the right equipment and the right software as reviewed by a third-party independent engineer that we had to hire at Santa Rita. So it became this ordeal of they had to program, instead of the DG, instead of the ATS, there was this relay. And, and what we learned from Santa Rita was avoid the utility approved relay and their third-party consultants and, and operate your system, engineer your system behind an ATS, behind a UL-listed ATS. There's a, you know, it's, it's never easy. There's limitations on what you can do with the ATS in terms of the actual site specifics, but at least it streamlines the interconnection process and it makes the HJs comfortable, the inspectors comfortable, that you have a UL-listed device that's in effect, the master controller that prevents that backfeeding, like you said. Right. So now that was several years ago. Uh, do you think that PG&E and, and Edison and other utilities now are gaining this comfort? There's lots of microgrids being developed 
in the state of California, I guess across the country as well. You know, I, I will say I, I participated in a, in a California Public Utilities Commission meeting right before COVID, <laughs> right in the right in in the late it was late early to early 2020, late 2019. They had a work. There's a working group that was looking at microgrids. And the main lesson I took away from that, and that's really about a year and a half after Santa Rita, was that people trying to develop microgrids are, are hitting the same barriers. It's the and and a company we're working with now that just got a, a permission to operate on a microgrid system in Central California. Literally, it still took them 12 months to get the microgrid uh, per, permission to operate from the utility. So, uh, you know. I'm hopeful these things take time. Um, the cartoon I had on my wall at Altair Energies was a, a frog halfway buried inside a crane's mouth with the frog had its hands around the crane's neck and the caption was never give up. So, you know, you have to keep, you have to keep working at it and you have to be, you know, find ways to deliver the, the solution. And I think the Santa Rita lessons learned and the, kind of this hybrid of learning what the genset does to make the utilities comfortable, learning what not to do at Santa Rita has created a solution that we started to create at Nant Energy and now MBL Energy is finishing the solution with our with our with our microgrid team that we think we 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 are confident we can operate these microgrids. That's what's happening at Santa Rita now, really behind um, a, a UL listed ATS in most situations. Right. And, and I hope, I'm hoping, Kirk, and I know this is going to sound a little bit too, too far out there for you, but I'm, I'm hoping that the utilities will shortly embrace microgrids as, you know, as generators on their system that will improve the resilience of the whole system. Uh, and that there's a real value in having all these microgrids that are, that are ready to spring into action and to provide these benefits. Uh, with the PSPS events, obviously, the utilities are are deploying generators and you know crazy strategies like that, which uh, which only exacerbates the climate problems that have whipped up the wildfires that have caused the PSPS events in the first place. But but do you think that we'll get to a point where there will be a happy um, marriage between macro grid and micro grids? Uh, I believe so. I think the you know the large forces at play are PSPS events, like you're saying, and climate change. And I think the utilities and the regulators in particular like what happened. The analogy for me, it's deja, so many deja vu moments in the storage, adding storage to the solar world from the early solar days that, that some of the lessons, some of the, the, the path that we're on to add storage to solar systems is, is, is analogous. It's similar in many ways to the learning curve that the utilities are on and just rightly being um, concerned about backfeed and not trusting everyone that everyone's going to do the pro do the software right to prevent backfeeding. So you need to have these standardized solutions. Once you get to a standardized solution, like what happened in the solar world, you get expedited interconnection agreements. You get these expedited approval processes, even NEM paired storage, the net, net metered solar plus storage now has an expedited interconnection process because of the UL listed inverters. I think we'll get there with microgrids eventually. It, it really has to, to really mushroom into the kind of market-based solution rather than these an early market solutions that we've been delivering into the market that 
but I think it has to, you have to come up with these standardized solutions. Yeah, it's, that's, that's true. And, and you mentioned the NIM, the net energy metering paired with storage. You know, you, I guess in the old days, only five years ago, you, you couldn't discharge your batteries into the grid. And now if you, if you power those batteries 100% with solar, at least for the investor-owned utilities in California, you can discharge uh, excess capacity back into the grid. By CPUC regulation, the answer is yes. Practically speaking, on a project-by-project project basis where the utility, again, doesn't have standardized methods for accepting non-export software, practically speaking, it doesn't exist yet from my perspective. Because, the, the, again, you get into this, this um, there is a CPUC ruling that says that's true. And we, all of our kilowatt hours into the batteries are from solar and the discharge between four and nine does the grid some good, but we still are capped by the site load. We can't export because the software, the protocols from the utilities perspective to approve those non-export um, mechanisms, the software mechanisms, they, the, they, don't, they don't exist. And believe me, the industry is asking the question and looking hard for standardized uh, approval processes so that the interconnection, again, the interconnection process is, can be streamlined, but that, it just takes time for these things to filter down into the actual practical world. Are you, are you following any of these microgrid tariff proceedings? Not closely on. I'm just puzzled by it. I guess California has, uh, has, has, a, has created a microgrid rule and at least the first phase of it, and Hawaii has also. And I, I think it's just a, a challenge. The challenge is to try to figure out um, what should the tariff be? And, and I, I see Hawaii Electric Company uh, has responded by saying, well, we should charge all microgrids $5 a kW per year uh, and just have a fee for them to be able to uh, interact with the utility, sort of like what's happening with net energy metered solar. The utilities are wanting to slap mm -hmm. on monthly monthly fees um but the but the regulators are, are trying to say wait wait a second um yes there's challenges to interconnecting microgrids but aren't there benefits as well and so i know i know in hawaii phase two of their microgrid tariff proceeding is to try to identify what the benefits are and you know maybe when we're developing microgrids kirk it's 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 such a game um we're trying to finance them, and as you know, we're, we're trying to pick up the investment tax credit for solar and the depreciation benefits, and we're trying to get the ITC for storage, and we're trying to get the SGIP, the Self-Generation Incentive Program incentives, for the batteries, and there's different tiers of that, as you know, and then we're, and the net energy metering is sort of in flux as to what the value will be, but it seems to me that when we're developing these systems, we're, we're trying to cobble together from all these sort of different incentives that we're really, we're not intended for microgrids at all. Um, and so it's, uh, I don't have any of the answers, but I think it'll be interesting in the coming years to see how, how regulators balance the challenge that you utilities have with interconnecting microgrids with the benefits that microgrids provide to society. Uh, and of course, it's very much like net energy, the net energy metering rules. I think if the utilities prevail and have uh, fees that are too expensive for microgrids, then, then people will just go off the grid altogether, right? I mean, we're kind of at a point now where the price of solar coming down, the price of batteries coming down so fast that, you know, people can defect from the grid or companies will make that choice 
if the regulators make the don't get the tariffs right. Yeah, and it it just it does seem you know the analogy again to solar is every time a solar system goes in, that's revenue lost from the utility. Those K, that meter and that KWH is lost revenue to the utility. So that's why they've fought NEM rules forever, and we're still evolving. And um, I, I, to me, microgrids are different in terms of the ability of the mi microgrid, I think, solves a problem for the utility. It doesn't create a problem, doesn't create lost revenue. It, it solves the problem of reliability and the, the grid having weak points and being affected by by wind events and fire events, the, to me, I think microgrids ought to have more of a, 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 a the utilities ought to be more advocates of the microgrids. I, I have that hope actually that I think that could be their perspective is that they the microgrid operation of a normally grid tied system can deliver benefits that are mutually beneficial between the customer and the utility because it solves the problem. Right, right, and we'll I, I've, always, I've always been an advocate that the utilities should have been in the solar business. Uh, if people want solar, sell them solar. Uh, and, and, and because we didn't do that, uh, all sorts of EPCs, all sorts of solar companies developed and created a lot of lost revenues for the utility. Um, right. Same thing, I, I was gonna ask you this question, um, but do you think that utilities ought to get into the microgrid space and, and be actually providing microgrids to customers, selling microgrid services, selling the resiliency that comes with microgrids? You know, they're, um, I think they were <laughs> a natural leader. Um, and I think they lost that opportunity a long time ago. I don't think energy services, you know, with the fact is a solar plus storage generator uh, delivers um, benefit to the to the customer at a lower price than the utility is selling electricity, and that solar plus storage generator can can deliver resiliency to that customer. Um, it seems like the deregulation genie is out of the bottle, and the utilities are going to become wires companies. They're going to be they're going to be the the company that has to collect their fees by delivering kilowatt hours across across the, the wires and the services. That's I don't know how it'll play out, but I think the utilities in many cases lost that opportunity a long time ago. So they just, they're seeing their, well, they're seeing that part of their business diminish, but then they're seeing, they're seeing all the, uh, the new kilowatt hour sales from electric vehicles and the electrification of buildings as sort of being there where they grow now. They, they, they're losing certain functions right. and growing, growing in other areas, but it certainly seemed to me that uh, and maybe it is too late, but maybe not. Maybe municipal utilities. I, I'm working now as the, uh, on the Glendale Water and Power Commission. We're a municipal utility here in Glendale. We're building a virtual power plant. And, um, you know, maybe we would have some customers that would like microgrids and that we could get behind that and, and demonstrate how, how a utility could own, operate a microgrid and provide that resiliency service for, for customers for a fee and, and be in business. Right. No, I think that it seems reasonable. I mean, if if a utility that hasn't been dragging their feet and been regulated and the pub public power sector <laughs> hasn't been rate regulated forever, still isn't for the most part, 
um, they, uh, you know, th there's still opportunity probably like these munis, the cities that, that are all requirements customers of DWP or however that, however that plays out in LA. My first, some of my first consulting work with, was with the power marketing agencies, WAPA and, and, uh, you know, BPA and all those sorts of guys. So there, I think there's still opportunity if the utility, if the municipality and the public power entity is innovative enough and they're thinking. And then to sort of another big picture question is like, how many microgrids will we have, you know, in the future? I mean, will they be, will it be common? Will, it be, will there be a microgrid, uh, you know, many microgrids in, in every community? Or, uh, I mean, it just seems like uh, the way the economics are going, like you said, it's, you can self-generate, store your power, have resiliency at, at a lower cost than buying from the grid. So this seems like it could be a, I don't want to say a runaway train because I think it's a very good thing. Well, and it's also, to me, having spent a fair amount of my early career thinking about off-grid solar, as soon as you don't have the grid to lean on for reliability, for energy services when the solar and storage system can't deliver it, that's a big threshold to cross. So the utilities still have a massive, even if they're just a wires company, that's not that's that's an understatement to say just because it's a, it's really important. You know, that if they could figure out a, a business model that they could benefit as well as their customers benefit by self-generating, that dependency on those wires and kind of that the price signals from utilities to to don't overproduce in the middle of the day push your generation to between 4 and 9 p.m. period, those distributed generators could actually be, an, uh, could help the utility operate its, its grid, I think, yeah. without completely disconnecting, because that's a big, big step for a customer to take to disconnect completely. It, it is a big step. I guess Stone Edge Farms uh, up in Mendocino has been operating uh, independent of the grid for about a year now. Uh, but they're, that's uh -huh. very experimental, and they put a lot, a lot of money into that. I want to, I want to, Talk just about a couple of your coolest projects because we worked together when you were at Sharp. Then Sharp was bought by Nant Energy, and then Nant Energy sold your division to MBL Energy. What are some of the coolest projects that you're working on right now? Well, and you and I have talked about this. The 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 I'll say the program that we're most excited about right now is working with Marin Clean Energy up in up in Napa. You know, up in Marin Napa, those North Bay counties that that. Marin MCE serves, as you know, um, in your work with uh, with CPA and and others. Now East Bay, it sounds like um, the, that's an incredibly innovative and really interesting um, business model. From MP MCE's perspective, there's they're delivering behind the meter benefits to their customers, but there's a, a benefit and, and an incentive for them to encourage customers to move solar kilowatt hours and through battery charging and discharging to that four to 9 PM period. And that helps their resource ad 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 adequacy charges offsets some of those charges from the utility. That's an incredibly innovative and an exciting business model. That's kind of what I, the way I think about it. So we're working with a lot of MCE customers to, uh, to put both, you know, the, 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 the whole solar world out there, the because of the history we just talked about, solar systems turn off when there's an outage. They just do. That's the way they were designed, not to backfeed. What we're doing is we're bringing storage into existing solar sites under this MCE program and re-energizing them, re-engineering them 
so that the solar system can stay on during the outage with the, with the help of this storage system. Now we're doing new solar plus storage projects for schools and, and Marin County and Napa County. So th that's a really exciting initiative from my perspective. Yeah, good. I'm glad you brought that up again. And, and the, uh, this whole notion of the stacked benefits, you know, the battery being an expensive asset and you want to use it for not just sitting there uh, for when the grid goes down, but you want to use it for energy arbitrage and peak clipping. And here's, a, here's an example of a CCA using it for a, an ancillary services, the resource adequacy that we talked about. And you're exactly right. You've you've heard this from me before that that you know we we focus on on the economics of grid tied operation first and and inherent in those positive economics now that you get a payback in a reasonable period of time and you're also buying resiliency with the same investment now you're buying that extra resiliency stack as you as you said very well. So it's a, it's an exciting time and storage is really precipitating that that change in that dynamic in the, in the solar world. What are you doing? Like personally, you've seen, you know, you mentioned you've been doing this, you've been doing this for a long time. I've been doing it for a long time. You're, you're a healthy <laughs> guy. What are you doing to keep balance in your life uh, to keep stress tamped down or are you faking it? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. And we, you know, we're, uh, I've always been, like I said, an outdoor enthusiast. I love being outside. I, I exercise regularly. Um, I'm a I'm a river rafting nut. I love to get on on uh, white water, but mostly just get on the river. <laughs> get in the backcountry. Let the river wash my wash my thoughts clean. I'm gonna be with um, with three of my sons. We're gonna be doing a, a, a four day three night. Uh, fly fishing trip on the upper Colorado here later this, this, uh, this month. So, uh, you know, tr balance in my life has always been, you know, I've, I love, I've loved being a dad. I've loved the work I've done, but I've, I've always been, it, balance has always been important to stay healthy along the way. So hope to be doing it for a long, a long time still. Right on, right on. Well, you're doing great. Thank you for all you've done uh, and for all that you will do. And for, uh, for EcoMotion, uh, you've been a great friend and you've also been a, a great source of uh, technical advice for us. So we, re we really appreciate that. <laughs> and, uh, so thanks so much for being on the net positive with me. I think people will be fascinated by your comments and uh, we'll do it again sometime. Uh, thank you, Ted. I appreciate the time. And as always, it's, uh, it's fun to talk with you and I look forward to the next conversation as well. Very good. Maybe it'll be out on the river. There you go. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Kirk. Take care. That's it. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of The Net Positive. We'll see you next time.